traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-35 Basus For Julia Soemius Bassiana, Emissa wasn't really home. True, she'd been born there, and it certainly held her earliest memories. But she'd moved to Ostia at the age of ten, and the capital soon after. And, well, after that, there was really no going back. For over two decades, Bassiana's home was the Imperial Palace and the Severan Court. Emissa was, well, Emissa was what was left. But given her recent losses, Bassiana took her comforts where she could. The first blow had been the death of her husband, the 50-year-old Sextus Varius Marcellus. In 215, shortly after returning from his governorship of Numidia, and on the verge of being elected Roman consul, Marcellus had suddenly died. And while that loss was hard, the past year, 217, had proven even worse. First came the death of her father, the respected proconsul and imperial comus Gaius Julius Avitus Alexianus. Then the murder of her cousin, the Emperor Caracalla, stabbed in the back in a roadside ditch. And finally, her aunt, the Empress Julia Domna who took her own life rather than bow to an usurper. And, of course, the last two losses were far more than sentimental. With Caracalla and Julia Domna gone, the Severan regime had crumbled, its titles stripped, and its members confined to their ancestral city of Emesa. There was one critical thing the new emperor hadn't taken— the mind-bogglingly vast Severan fortune. And I'm not only talking about the enormous income from the Sun Temple of Elagabal, but also the personal fortune amassed by Bassiana and her mother through the high offices held by their husbands. Though he was desperate for money, Macrinus was prevented from seizing the fortune outright due to the lingering popularity of the Severans. 
After the losses and setbacks of his first few months in power, the military prowess of Severus and military generosity of Caracalla were already throwing the would-be emperor into pretty unflattering relief. So, for the moment, Severin wealth remained secure. And, as long as she was counting assets, Bassiana still had her surviving family. Not only her mother, Julia Mesa, but also her sister, Julia Avita Mamaya, Mamaya's husband, Gessius Marcianus, and their ten-year-old son, Severus Alexander. There was also her more distant cousin, 28-year-old Uranius Antoninus, who'd lived in Emesa all his life. But, of course, there was one treasure Bassiana prized above all others. Her beautiful 14-year-old son, Elagabalus. I mean, just look at him. The most handsome youth of his age, bar none. And don't just take it from her. Everybody says so. The most popular ticket in Emesa was watching Elagabalus officiate as high priest of the sun god Elagabal. First off was the temple, which, according to Herodian, was lavishly decorated with gold, silver, and costly gems. But even more stunning was the temple's mythic centerpiece, a huge black stone with a pointed end and round base in the shape of a cone. As discussed way back in episode B-15, the Emesenes felt the stone was linked to the Mesopotamian sun god Shamash. So, we've got our set, now let's talk costumes. According to Herodian, Elagabalus wore a long-sleeved purple tunic embroidered with gold, which hung to his feet and was paired with matching trousers. He also wore a crown of multicolored precious gems. And his act? Well, that was the highlight. According to Herodian, during his services, Elagabalus danced about the altars in barbarian fashion, to the music of flutes, pipes, and every kind of instrument. It was all very Vegas headliner stuff, and the crowds apparently ate it up. It's worth mentioning that his younger cousin Severus Alexander was also a priest of the sun god, but there's no question who was the star attraction. The degree to which Elagabalus had embraced his role and his level of devotion to Elagabal were pretty much off the charts, which was kind of surprising for someone who'd spent the majority of his youth in Rome. Among Elagabalus's biggest fans were the legionaries stationed in Emesa. Youthful beauty and showmanship aside, they were fascinated that he was the eldest surviving male Severin. They also noted his freakish resemblance to a youthful Caracalla, who could be seen on old Severin coins. In fact, a rumor began circulating that Elagabalus was actually Caracalla's son. Bassiana was all for her son being popular, but rumors of incest were a bit much. But, oddly enough, when she tracked the rumor down, the source turned out to be her own mother. Caught in the act, Julia Mesa was unapologetic. 
Yes, she admitted, she'd been spreading the rumor that Caracol had slept with both Bassiana and Mamaya, and fathered both their children. But her motivation for doing so was practical. A more direct link to Caracalla meant more sympathy from the legions, just in case Macrinus ever decided to move against them. While Bassiana understood the logic, she may have had trouble balancing her mother's fiction against the desire to honor her husband's memory. But then again, maybe not. Since the death of Marcellus, Bassiana had taken up with a young athlete, or, as Dio puts it, one who had given satisfaction in games and exercises. His name was Ganes, and he also acted as a mentor, tutor, and general substitute dad to Elagabalus. Judging by his later actions, he was also bold, insightful, and ambitious, and had at least some understanding of politics and military strategy. Ever since the failed Parthian campaign, Ganes had become increasingly aware of the soldiers' love for Elagabalus and their disenchantment with the Emperor Macrinus. So, one night, he pulled the trigger on an extremely dangerous plan. Ganes dressed up Elagabalus in the clothes of a young Caracalla, grabbed a few local senators, and rode off thirty miles northwest to Raphanea the legionary base of the 3rd Gallic Legion. The next morning, May 16th, 218 AD, Ganes announced that Elagabalus was Caracalla's son, and the rightful heir to the imperial throne. Oh, and did I mention that he did all this without consulting either Bassiana or Julia Mesa? Because, according to Dio, he totally, totally did not consult them. The Third Gallic Legion didn't take much convincing, and hailed Elagabalus as the Emperor Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. Which, on the surface, seemed like a pretty crazy move. I mean, the Emperor Macrinus was only a stone's throw away, in the effective eastern capital of Antioch. And while the Third Gallic Legion was the only one near Emesa, the northern province of Coel Syria held two, the 16th Flavian Legion based in Samosata and the 4th Scythian Legion based in Zugma. Macrinus also commanded the Praetorian Guard and the 2nd Parthian Legion, both summoned from Rome to serve in the east as part of Caracalla's military buildup. And I've neglected to mention it, but Macrinus was from Mauritania, otherwise known as the land of Juba and Selene. And also brought out to serve in the east was a group of Mori tribesmen, which meant that whatever else happened, Macrinus had access to a fiercely loyal body of troops from his very own home province. When you did the math, all these factors gave Macrinus a roughly five-to-one military advantage. One of Macrinus's most fervent supporters was his Praetorian prefect, Ulpius Julianus. And it was Julianus who drew the conflict's first significant blood. The specifics are murky, but the prefect was able to get his hands on Gessius Marcianus. 
Bassiana's brother-in-law, Mamias' husband, and the father of young Severus Alexander. At the same time, the prefect captured both Marcianus's daughter and her husband. And, with little fanfare, Julianus had all three executed. It was a pretty clear sign that the gloves were off in the war between Macrinus and the Severans. And, for the three Severan matrons still holed up in Emesa, it must have been a terrifying time. Elagabalus' effective kidnapping by Gannis, the three murders, and word that Julianus was marching south to stamp out the revolt, each dispatch seemed to be writing the final grim chapter in the Severan family's destruction. And then, miraculously, the chapter got rewritten. Things started off well enough for the prefect Julianus, and Macrinus's Mori tribesmen managed to batter down a few of Raphinea's city gates. But critically, Macrinus sent orders to hold off storming the city, concerned about the potential blowback from an inter-Roman bloodbath. Instead, the emperor hoped Raphinea's defenders would see their hopeless situation and surrender. Unfortunately for Macrinus, the Third Gallic Legion was apparently all in. And not only did they rebuild the damaged city gates, but they also unleashed their not-so-secret weapon. Legionaries walked the ramparts, in full view of Macrinus's troops, and gave them all a very good look at their true emperor. Their argument was pretty direct. This is Caracalla's son, so why are you backing Caracalla's usurper? And, according to Dio, it took the besieging troops around two full seconds to come around. Julianus was forced to flee for his life, toward the relative safety of Apamea. Meanwhile, Macrinus had just arrived in Apamea where he elevated his ten-year-old son, Diadumenian, from Caesar to full Augustus. So, you know, hold still, son, while I make that target on your back a little bigger. Since Apamea was the temporary home of the Second Parthian Legion, Macrinus used the occasion to promise the soldiers a huge bribe. Sorry, donative. The emperor also threw a lavish banquet for Apamea's leading citizens, without bothering to tell them about that pesky revolt down south. According to Dio, the banquet was interrupted when a soldier brought in the severed head of the Praetorian prefect Julianus, who'd been cornered and executed by Severan troops. Taking the hint, Macrinus paid the bill, grabbed his son, and made with all due speed for Antioch. Actually, sometime before he left, the emperor found a hot minute to visit the oracle of Zeus Bellos, the same one who'd given Severus the good news, bad news treatment. What did it tell him? I'm glad you asked. Old man, verily warriors young, harass and exhaust thee. Utterly spent is thy strength, and a grievous end comes upon thee. Oh, those cryptic oracles, always so hard to decipher. Come, Diadumenian, we'll try to unravel that one on the ride back home, shall we? Oh, and the minute Macrinus left, 
the Second Parthian Legion went over to Elagabalus. By this time, it's likely that Elagabalus had returned to Emesa, along with Mom's new boyfriend and would-be kingmaker, Ganes. Having her son back safe and sound was clearly a relief, but Bassiana knew that keeping him alive now meant winning a civil war, which, for the moment, took the form of a propaganda war, waged from the rival capitals of Emesa and Antioch. What the Severans needed was an experienced leader, someone sharp enough and ruthless enough to tear the empire from Macrinus's grasp. As it happened, such a figure was readily available, in the form of Elagabalus's grandmother, Julia Mesa. With the skill of an experienced field commander, Mesa deployed men, words, and the vast Severan fortune in a coordinated assault on the levers of Roman power. It certainly didn't hurt that the battle was being fought on Mesa's home turf of Syria, but the greatest advantage Mesa had were the glaring disadvantages of her opponent. Macrinus was an equestrian, a failed general, and a bumbling politician, who'd angered the Senate by denying them power and angered the legions by reducing their pay. Without a real power base, the emperor was reduced to bribing his soldiers for loyalty. And I'm sorry, but if it was coming down to money, Macrinus didn't stand a chance. Less than a month after the rebellion started, Bassiana found herself in the company of her son, her mother, and at least two Roman legions, marching north on Macrinus's stronghold of Antioch. Commanding the legions, and don't ask me how, was Bassiana's new boyfriend, Ganes. Though he apparently had zero military experience, Dio records that he disposed his soldiers in good order for warfare. Macrinus marched out with his Praetorian guard, and the two sides met at a village south of Antioch. Macrinus initially got the better of the fight, and the Severan forces began fleeing in disarray. Bassiana and Mesa jumped down from their carriages and pled with the soldiers to keep up the fight. But the decisive factor was Elagabalus himself, who drew his sword and charged the enemy on horseback. Maybe it was martial courage, maybe it was performance art, or maybe Elagabalus had started believing in his own destiny. Either way, it inspired his troops and they followed him back into battle. Macrinus lost his nerve and abandoned the field, and the war for the empire was over. Well, over except for the sad and embarrassing parts. Like Macrinus bundling up his young son, the co-emperor Diadumenian, and shipping him off to the Parthians for safety. Unfortunately, before he could cross the frontier, he was recognized, arrested, and executed by the Severans. For his own part, Macrinus shaved his head and beard, put on common clothes, and rode off west through Anatolia. His plan was to reach Rome, gain the support of the Senate, and lead western forces back east to put down the rebellion. 
Which wasn't entirely dumb, since the Senate had never been a huge fan of the Severans. Unfortunately, Macrinus blew his cover outside Nicomedia when he tried to secure money for the voyage to Rome. On Severan orders, the emperor was arrested, put in chains, dragged to Cappadocia, and finally executed. So, I mean, total victory, right? And the grumbling legions finally got the emperor they'd always wanted, a flamboyant teenage religious fanatic. Well, okay, when you put it that way, maybe it wasn't exactly the best-case scenario, but wait, did I mention the vast Severan fortune? Within the Severan family, everyone must have just been staring at each other with stunned smiles stuck to their faces. In around a month, they'd gone from endangered species to fully restored imperial dynasty. All because of Mom's new boyfriend, Gannies, and his impulsive nighttime stunt. The family soon followed up on their victory by relocating to Antioch. The only hiccup was that the Second and Third Legions, those who'd fought for the Severans, had been given the impression they'd be allowed to sack the city. Since that just wouldn't do... Elagabalus, or more likely his grandmother Julia Mesa, promised the soldiers 500 denarii apiece if they left the city alone. As a cost-saving measure, the bribe would be paid by the wealthy citizens of Antioch. In his first letter to the Senate, Elagabalus described himself as Emperor and Caesar, son of Caracalla, grandson of Severus, pious Felix, Augustus, proconsul, and holder of the tribunician power. The Senate responded by confirming his elevation, deifying both his father, Caracalla, and his grandmother, Julia Domna, and damning the memories of the evil usurpers, Macrinus and Diadumenian. Both Bassiana and Julia Mesa were hailed as Augusta, but in a sign of who really called the shots, only Julia Mesa was granted the additional title of Mother of the Camps and of the Senate. Closer to home, the Severans elevated Marcus Valerius Comazone, legate of the Third Gallic Legion, to the role of Praetorian Prefect. And then, well, it was time for the inaugural bloodbath. Any official who'd backed Macrinus, or just hesitated in backing Elagabalus, was arrested and put to death. This included the governors of both Coel Syria and Arabia Petraea, as well as the legate of the Second Parthian Legion. But these kind of purges always provided opportunities for grinding more personal axes. The new prefect Comazone had once served in Thrace under the current governor of Cyprus, Claudius Attalus. As punishment for some crime, Attalus had once reduced Comazone from legionary to rower on a trireme. Comazone now got his revenge by persuading the Severans to have Attalus killed. Comazone was apparently skilled at working the Severan system, and he'd soon enjoy positions as both consul and city prefect. 
After a few months securing Severin control over the East, Julia Mesa convinced Elagabalus it was time to go home. He had no objection to returning to the capital. I mean, the Romans deserved to see their new emperor. But he also had no intention of abandoning his high priesthood. That being the case, there was only one solution. The black stone of Elagabal would just have to come with him. It's hard to guess whose jaws drop faster. The Emesenes, who equated the stone with their tribal identity, or the Romans, who knew just how poorly it'd play back home. Abstract gods were fairly common in the East, ranging from Yahweh, who couldn't even be depicted, to the Buddha, who for centuries was represented only by footprints. Perhaps the closest parallel to Ela Gabal was the main Nabataean god Dushara, who was worshipped as a simple square block, or even the pre-Islamic Kaaba stone in Mecca. But all these were a far cry from the familiar anthropomorphic gods of Greece and Rome. And even when the empire had embraced eastern gods, like the Phrygian Great Mother or the Egyptian Isis, they were always depicted in human-like form and were given a Roman spin. As just one example, Commodus had sold the Romans on the Egyptian god Serapis by making him protector of the grain shipments from Egypt. Finding that kind of niche for Ela Gabal would likely prove a challenge. And if Julia Mesa opposed her grandson on any one decision, it was likely his wish to transplant the Emocene sun god. But it was on that point that Elagabalus stood most firm. And, well, who was the emperor here anyway? In the winter of 218, the royal family began moving west across Anatolia toward Rome. Along the way, Julia Mesa made an attempt to acclimate the Romans to her grandson's arrival. She sent the Senate a portrait of Elagabalus dressed in purple robes embroidered in gold and wearing necklaces, bracelets, and a golden crown. And if Elagabalus looked fairly alien and exotic, he paled in comparison to his object of worship. A massive black stone, taller than a man, wide at one end and narrow at the other, with the surface-bearing markings and odd projecting features. In short, the painting managed to cram pretty much every fear or suspicion the Romans had about the East into one single horrifying image. Julia Mesa knew how shocking it appeared. Her main hope was that by the time they arrived, the worst of the shock might have worn off. On her orders, the portrait was hung in the Senate House, directly above the Statue of Victory. And even those senators who despised Caracalla were forced to admit that things could always get worse. <laughs> 